Hello and welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke now. Hello everybody, I'm Chris. I'm an alcoholic. Sorry for the delay. Here is the joke. There was exactly $17.04 left of her paycheck when she got home late that night. Her husband read her the riot act, and when he'd finished, the drunk's wife said, well, at least I bought something for the house. The husband brightened. What was it? He asked. A round of drinks, she said. I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Musab. Thank you for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that might make noise or that might distract others. Take this time to get connected to God and let the craziness of the day drift away. And ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation. Mike. 
Who's the speaker tonight? Okay, and then um, we're going to follow up the two-minute meditation by doing the fog light prayer. So, God, let your love shine through me like a fog light, so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. So there is a solution from the big book on page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I've asked Paulette to read Spiritual Experience. Hi, I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Paulette. Hey, Paulette. Uh, Spiritual Experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself amongst us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters of a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. 
Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformation, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James called the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are quite aware of the difference long before he himself. He finally realized that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. That such a change could hardly be, have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exception, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our most religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one needs have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essential of recovery. But these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which proof against all arguments which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Thank you. Thank you. And um, please refrain from, um, or I'm sorry, we read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one. So it's important to know what it is. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane mode or turn them off. And uh, now I'd like to introduce our speaker, Peter Marinelli. All right. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. And grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, it's great to be back here um, doing one of these. Um, before we get going, I just want to thank uh, Michael and the group for asking me back here to share and uh, to thank all the trusted servants who got here <coughs> probably 9 o'clock this morning to set this room up and uh, for the great job they do. I, I love walking in here. I feel like I'm at an AA conference. 
with all the bells and whistles behind me, all important stuff. And I think it just does a great service to a newcomer walking in the door to see some class and dignity at an AA meeting and our trusted servants uh, uh, presenting properly and giving AA its respect. So I thank you for feeding me every time I walk in here. Uh, June 23rd, 1988 is when a loving God separated me from alcohol. I'm very grateful for this gift of sobriety. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, the longer I'm sober, I've said this from a million podiums, the longer I'm sober and perhaps the older I'm getting, old times say, how do you become an old timer? Don't drink and don't die. And I'm on my way so far. Um, <laughs> but um, the longer I'm sober and the older I'm getting, um, what has uh, I've come to experience and appreciate, even though I leave claw marks in it sometimes, is the things that God has removed from me and continues to remove from me. And those are the things I think I need to be okay, namely money, property, and prestige. All those outside things that I think I need to be okay in here are futile. They're delusional to lock into one of those. In fact, in order for me to be in touch with whatever is out there, I need to first touch and experience what is in here all, all, all along. And for years, I had it backwards. If I could only get that, I'd be a real man. If I only get that, I'd be a real AA member. If I only, if I only, if I only. And then I would hear someone share in the first row, and they had an if-only story, too. And the person in the 10th row had an if-only story, too. And we're all grasping at nothing. Yeah. And then I would see some of the folks in AA who usually just had an ease and comfort about their uh, deportment. And they weren't reaching out there, but they were touching what was in here and their walk was lighter. I joyfully carried a cross God has put on my back. He didn't ask me to put two, and very often I put three. It's all called self-will run riot. So over and over and over again, these things have proved to be incredibly important to me. The other thing that's uh, been important to me for a number of years now is relationships, personal relationships. One of the bedevilments I need to look out for, trouble in personal relationships, but mending the old scrapes, fixing up that stuff, not harboring stuff. And if I do and I have, I need to write inventory, pray, and call my sponsor and have a discussion. And very often I get to a place when I'm really in that kind of life, forgive them for they know not what they do. People who are sick do sick things. And what I can only do as good as a light I'm standing in. And so over the years I've been able to mend a lot of uh, uh, relationships, not because they have changed, but God has given me the ability to have a different point of view and have a different angle on this person and drop the false expectations of what they ought to be doing for me. So with all the busy life Mary and I uh, have, uh, somewhere in there is an undercurrent of okayness because we lean into God a whole lot. It's great for me to be here uh, because every time I drive up here now, um, just a short while ago, Mary and I got married right across the street. So this is like sacred ground for me. So it's pretty cool. It was uh, the greatest day of my life uh, to marry my, my best friend in the whole world and right across the street. And uh, there was a gentleman, uh, uh, Pastor Nick, who's just gold in my heart. And it, what a great, it's just great to be here. Um, my sponsor is a gentleman by the name of Bob Azans from St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, he's been in this deal for a long time, and um, I had approached him a while ago. Uh, if he would uh, sponsor me, and his reply was, I would love to, and it's been an incredible journey. A lot of eye-opening for me, even with being sober this long. A lot of challenges, a lot of wrinkles, and a lot of different ways I do my walk nowadays. And I'm very grateful to him and the circle uh, that he runs in. I've been blessed since I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, probably blessed when I was 
out there because it got me here, uh, but certainly blessed since I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, God has put men, uh, and there have been plenty of ladies in my life, the old timers who mothered me and nurtured me and, and, and pampered me and, and encouraged me and inspired me. But I need to talk about the men because those were the most intimate I was with in sponsorship and confiding guy things to another guy. Uh, the men have put my life from my very first sponsor uh, to my current sponsor. And some of the men along the way were some of my idols. You know, there's a gentleman, Mark H. from Texas, and Joe H. from California, and the godfather of them all, Don P. And I got to be with these men and share my life with them and allow them to manage my life because I couldn't. So uh, AA has been uh, just absolutely incredible for me. Um, you know, June 23rd, 1988, um, I had six treatment centers behind me. And uh, by the time I got to my seventh treatment center, and I know my assignment is step one. I hope God gets me that. Um, Six treatment centers. I had given up on Alcoholics Anonymous. I had tried AA uh, a number of times, but drunk. Yeah, drunk. And I would stand in the back of the room and take inventory. In fact, a few times I would raise my hand and critique the speaker. <laughs> and it wasn't pretty. I, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, the F-bomb is very acceptable. <laughs> I effing love you, man. It's just like, kind of like that. And um, uh, they just said, keep coming back. And H and I would come into the treatment center, and um, they would talk about these great lives they had. And I knew I was convinced it wouldn't work for me. My mind had me convinced that AA was for other people, good, upstanding people, well-to-do people, educated people. My name is Peter Marinello. You can never do this. This is not going to happen. Just go die. And after my sixth treatment center, which I walked out after 36 hours, I tried to do that in some flea bag motel in Staten Island, New York. Ate a whole bunch of pills and washed them down with alcohol, got into bed and waited to die because that's what I wanted. That was my solution. See, what I've learned many of my lessons the hard way, that this predator, this predator, this four-letter word called the mind, if I'm listening to my thought life, it will create my current reality. If I'm not careful and I can't see that happening. If I think about from the time I woke up to right now, how often has my thought life created my little current reality? And I believe it to be true. And that gives it power. This thinking mind. Why we tell new people, bring the body and the mind will follow. I don't know because I don't want your mind or my mind showing up anywhere. <laughs> Very often we hear people say, um, I'm going to go down there and give them a piece of my mind, and I offer them, give them the whole thing, because you really don't need it. <laughs> yeah, because if I'm out of my mind, it's the only place I can truly experience this power. It's when I'm in my mind, I think I'm experiencing God, but I'm just servicing me, and I'm worshiping me and the seven deadly sins, but I think I'm on a spiritual path. And as soon as I think I'm on a spiritual path, I'm probably not. As soon as I claim God, I've just lost it. As soon as I think I'm spiritual, humble, I'm not. But somewhere in the searching, the chopping wood and carrying water, the grinding out, looking to get there, but I'm, 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 I'm all in. That's when the awakenings are happening. And we live life forward and understand it backwards. I look, oh my God, I see what just took place. Go chop wood and carry more water. And there's another enlightenment because I will never get there anyway until my last breath is given to me. Yeah? So it's been a long road and I, I, I still get hooked by this mind. I still get trapped by it. And I was talking to someone earlier uh, 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 about this work we get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I love our mechanics. I was brought up with very, very rigid sponsors who disciplined me to the spiritual life. My willingness was there, but I had to be disciplined. The fat had to be cut away. It wasn't like a, a, a on-again, off-again AA member. I was all in and did whatever they told me. But what I found myself doing along this journey was becoming married to, me, to mechanics, thinking somehow the mechanics were going to get me free. And it was, I lost sight of God walking me through the mechanics to get me back to him in the first place. You know, I, I am working on my fourth step. Well, who's keeping me sober while I'm doing that? So all of this work is about experiencing the freedom that the book has to offer, that God is constantly looking to serve us. But I got into worshiping mechanics and doing stuff. I got to do stuff. Give me an assignment to do. And if you told me do nothing, it was like, well, this is, this is blasphemy. I got to do something. No, can you just be still for 10 minutes? Oh, that's pretty impossible. To me, it's about getting right with this power, pleasing this God, serving this God, practicing fidelity to this God. If, I'm, if I practice fidelity to God, I will experience God's fidelity to me. If I'm faithful to this practice, the practice will be faithful to me. There could be no distractions. This must be at the top of the list. For the longest time, you know, I fell into the AA boot camp, and it's a good lesson. Sobriety is my number one priority. If you're newcomer, hold on to that. Sobriety is my number one priority, but sometimes the truth is true until we discover a new truth. For me, my number one priority is having conscious contact with God. That's it. Having conscious contact with God is number one on the list. And when I do that, I find myself sober. When I do that, I find a lot of the isms get silent. Not perfect, but silent. When I do that, I'm less attached to my thinking mind and more awake to this power called God, which this whole thing is about. Because all my mind does is before and later on, before and later on, before and later on, be all day long. And then I come to an AA meeting and say, how are you doing? I'm so tired. But you don't work. How could this be possible? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know about you. I wake up usually at 5 a.m. every morning. This morning, 4.15. But 5 a.m. Uh, every morning I wake up. And I ever wake up? You know, whatever your time is, mine is five. I open up my eyes, and by 5.02, I'm in a heated argument with someone who died 30 years ago. <laughs> and I thought about that because the mind is going right through the night. I didn't sleep much. I was tossing and turning. I was wrestling with the entire planet. This is wonderful predator called the mind. I can't outthink it. The very same mind that tells me it's going to fill the hole is the very same mind that keeps digging a hole. And what it wants, one of the things my mind wants is control over everything. And I somehow think, my mind convinces me that if I can get control, my life will be okay. If you would only do as I want. Even while I'm praying. How often is prayer negotiation? A bargaining chip. Telling God what we need as if he doesn't know. If I have to tell God what I need, I think I need to find another God. If he's not hip to my life, I'm in trouble. But I petition God, you give me this, and I'll be kind to other people. And I go from Moses to Rambo in two minutes. And I'm seeking control while I'm praying, yeah? Believing if God gives me what I want, he really loves me. And if he doesn't, he's, he doesn't. If he doesn't, he's not listening. And no prayer goes unanswered. I just have to listen to the alternatives, yes and no. When I don't get what I want, it's not that God's not listening. Like a little child, mom is not going to give him the keys to the car and say, go drive, when the baby says, give me the keys. It's no, because I love you, you'll get hurt. 
God hears all the prayers. So June of 88, I'm living in an abandoned building in uh, lower Manhattan in uh, infamous Alphabet City. It was the 80s. Um, you had winos, junkies, homeless people, bums, and then the crack scene hit. I'm sure some of you guys can identify with crack. Um, <laughs> the crack scene hit, and it, was, it got really bad. I was really, I remember being in, they called it Valium Park, because you cop Valium in this park. And uh, <laughs> we were pretty smart. And um, you had the, 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 the drunks, we were on one side, and you had the pill guys here, and then you had the junkies there. We all got along until the crackheads walked in, we don't want them in this park. And as sick and twisted up I, I, as I was, I said, well, what's the difference? You know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket anyway. And uh, I took up residency in the back of an abandoned building. I was so weak and feeble then, uh, about 130 pounds, about 200 right now in front of you, 200 pounds, 70 pounds less. You know what I look like. You know, I had hepatitis C, I'm urinating blood. I haven't bathed in months, had a square meal in an even longer time, and I was on the street. That's what you do. And what's really frightening when that becomes like you get used to it, that's even worse than, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. That was my first reaction. A couple of months on the street, it's what you do. And then God surrendered me on that particular day. I didn't even know it was June, let alone June 23rd. But if any of us have ever been in treatment, I'm sure there's a few of those in here. You know when you check into treatment, you know those admissions people, they're so happy to see you. <laughs> Especially if you've got a good, good insurance policy, they love you. And today's the first day of the rest of your life, and, and, and I'm like thinking homicide and suicide at this point. <laughs> Honey, it's June 23rd, 1988. June 23rd is the first day of the rest of your life, and it kind of got deposited back here. Then you get 30 days and six days, so this is becoming important, this June 23rd thing. And that's how I got my day, remember, the last day I drank. But that particular day, I remember getting up off the floor and... Um, trying to get out onto the street to panhandle money because I wouldn't wake up like I do now. I would come to, Bill talks about it best, the terror of the morning madness was on him. The hideous four horsemen woke me up. That terror, frustration, bewilderment, despair, hate. And I hated everything around me, but most of all, I hated the guy looking, in the, looking back at me in the mirror. I knew what I was. And I can't get out anymore. I know I can't get out. I cannot get out. I can't go more than a couple hours without putting alcohol in my body. And if I can hustle up money, I like to eat pills with that just to shut me down. Because if I go a little while, the shakes start and the belly goes and the sweating. And I was detoxing all the time, going through withdrawal, I should say. I left the narcotics behind, and I thought I'd have a free ride. It got even worse, quick. I don't just hit bottoms. I, like, I move in. And I collapsed on the floor. It was as if someone hit me in the back of the knees. The knees went out and on the floor, and I couldn't get up. And I remember feeling so weak and feeble and thinking, how did I get here? I pick up a drink at 14 on a street corner in Brooklyn. It was euphoric, and now I'm a homeless bum who can't get out. Alcohol is my master. It owns me. I can't get out. And all I can think about is getting a drink to figure out how not to drink. And there was no choice, power, and control when the next drink was going to happen. I need to drink. I, I need a drink just to breathe right now. I got to stop this. I need a drink. And you get to a point, I know I did. Well, I'm not getting drunk anymore. That's long gone. There's no good times. 
is drinking basically to breathe. I couldn't get up off the floor and uh, something happened. Uh, God's light kind of split me open like a laser. And on June 23rd, 1988, I look back on it now, it was all God. It was very godly, the whole thing in this abandoned building because my God doesn't need to go to some decorative palace with a lot of pomp and circumstance to show up. He'll go into the most sordid spot. My God went into the hood to get people like us. And he came into the back of this hallway. And I realized what I was. It was abundantly clear. It was that aha moment. I reek. I'm filthy. I can't stop drinking. Suddenly, I'm missing my family. I'm thinking of my whole childhood. How did I get here? I don't want to die, though, for the first time. I remember thinking, if I get a drink in me, I'm going to die, and I need one. And if I don't get a drink, I'm going to die. What do I do? I don't want this for the first time. I'm not welcoming dying. And the very same God who I mocked, spat at, despised, hated, never an atheist. I just knew he was out there, but had it in for me and my life. That very same God, please take me from this. I don't want to die. This loving God gave me his mercy. What I've come to find out, the mercy was always there. I just never listened. God doesn't love me. If I change, he's always loved me. So that I change it. It's going on right now. Even to the cat, maybe in the back of the room, one day back or a few hours, God's got, he's got just as much God in him or her as we do tonight collectively. It's God. He doesn't say some for you and not for you. But I had to get to a place where I ran out of road, hit the wall, and I was brought to a place of being reasonable, as that book talks about. And I looked back on it over and over and over again. As much as I says I want to get sober, I was not willing to exchange old ideas for new ones. I still wanted to hold on to a few. Some of the old uh, emotions, ideas, and attitudes, I want to hold on to a little bit. And all I kept doing was living my story and creating new chapters rather than living the life God is willing to give me. We sometimes hear in our meetings, same story, same coffee uh, pot dialogue about how bad it is, the oh my gods, if only goes on and on. At what point do we begin to live the life God's giving us freely? One of freedom. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. I'll be an alcoholic until God gives me my last breath. But I'd rather die with alcoholism than from alcoholism. And I can die from alcoholism without ever putting a drink or a substance in my body. I'll just blow my brains out when the noise gets so loud and life gets so uncomfortable. And I don't pick up a drink, but I'll figure another way out. I, I was given a statistic years ago, a frightening one how more alcoholists commit suicide sober than drunk because we're untreated and just wrestling with the isms all day long. And no matter where I go, there I am, and there's one way out. My alcoholism gets a life by taking mine. I'm the host. It, it, it feeds off of me. I heard a gentleman say it best. My alcoholism cannot go to the liquor store and purchase alcohol, but he convinces me to go do it. And it's all up here in this head. And it was a long, hard lesson. It almost killed me till I got to a point of way beyond conceding to my own innermost self. I'm alcohol, way beyond having a powerful desire to stop drinking because none of that's going to keep me sober. It'll bring me to your door and say, please, can you help me? But it's not good for the marathon. It's a quick run. And we go in and out and in and out and in and out all day long. There was something else that happened on June 23rd, 1988. Something I can't explain. There's no adjectives to describe it. In fact, when any time we try to talk about God, we tell stories about it. 
We read about God's stories, but it doesn't describe what happened. You can't. There are no words to describe this power. My dad found me later in the day standing on a street corner, and I was placed in my seven treatment center. And what I get to do today is talk about not only what it was like, what happened, but what it's like now, the good news. The good news that was freely brought to me. Freely brought to me. I didn't even insurance policy or money because you can't. The soul, God, is not for sale. And that's the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, the sacredness of our fellowship. It's for fun and for free. We don't care where you've been. Not that we're callous about it. We're not checking you at the door. Just, well, come on in. We'll pour you a cup of coffee. Welcome home. And yet we leave. Got into my seven treatment center, and they shipped me out to Minnesota after about 10 days because I remember hearing people, places, and things, and I thought it was therapeutic nonsense. You know, somebody stole that one in here so they can get paid. That sounds really fancy. People, places, and things. I hated it. And then I came to experience it. It's very, very real. It's very real. So they sent me to Minnesota, and while I was out there for about a year living out there, I was getting some traction in this, pro in this fellowship, but I didn't have a program yet. And almost six months to the day, I got, almost got loaded because my alcoholism was going underground and resurfacing in other areas. My first year, I developed a seating disorder. I'm binging and purging, telling no one about it. I'm getting sick from it. I'm looking to act out 80 different ways because I don't know what to do with this, this thing called alcohols. I'm not drinking. I'm not taking substances. But it's just bubbling to the top. And the mind owned me. It told me how to feel. It told me how to see. It told me what to hear. It told me how to hear. It told me what to speak. The great thing about being an Alcoholics Anonymous, I shut that down. And the soul, we get into the soul. That always knows where to go, what to say, how to be, what to do. The mind creates delusions which block me from the truth. You know, you can walk up and say, nice jacket, and walk away, and I'll go, what the hell does she mean by that? <laughs> too big, too small, wrong color, who is she? I don't like her, you know, right? And she gave me a compliment. It's bondage looking at the world and hearing the world through the mind. It's never the truth. And it's always looking for something. It's self-serving, self-seeking, self-absorbed and likes to get me drunk. And while I was out in Minnesota, I was brought to a meeting called the Three Legacies Meeting, and I heard a message that was probably being spoken way before that, but I heard it for the first time. The ears on the soul, if you will. I was listening from in here, and I saw these men and women dressed impeccably at the podium. The trusted servants dressed impeccably at the podium. And it intimidated me, but it attracted me at the same time. How do you look so impeccable? Just clean cut. How do you do that? And I would hear their stories. How do you go from that to here? How is this possible? And they all talked about God. They all talked about this great power. They all talked about their being immersed in this power. This oneness with God, not two-ness with God. And they didn't apologize from God for, for God from the, from the podium. I was intimidated by it, but attracted by it. And a year uh, later, I was brought home to my first home group, the Free Spirit Group, and this gentleman was put in my path, Tony N. Everyone in Brooklyn is named Tony, by the way. Um, but uh, he opened up this book, and we began a journey through this book, and he sounded a, a lot like the people in Minnesota. And he was a, a man who had a 10 and 11 life. 
inventory, prayer, meditation. He had a lot of Eastern philosophy in his life, a lot of Christian stuff in his life. Somehow he made it work. And when I first met him, he just, to me, he was just, he was just levitating. He, just, the, he had the answers. And he was a roughneck, and I was attracted to that. He didn't sugarcoat anything. Oh, you're a newcomer. I'll be nice. No, you're full of baloney. Do some work or go get drunk. I don't got time for this. Some of the people, oh, my God, that's what, that's what I needed. That's what I needed. I needed a drill sergeant. Because if I have some wiggle room, my mind will take it. And we began a journey through the book. And I thought at this point that the seven treatment centers and going to some meetings in sobriety, and you know, you know how it is, you get 60 days and you think you wrote the big book, you know how that goes. Uh, I'm, the most important, I'm the most important person in AA because I'm a newcomer. Um, maybe not. Um, but I thought I knew a lot about step one. I experienced what it was like out there when they talked about uh, the humiliation, degradation, and uh, unmanageability. I thought I had that uh, locked in, but I was far from really understanding the depth of step one, that that can be present, current unmanageability can be happening while I'm sober 30 and 40 and 50 years. I can still experience the unmanageability of my life that step one talks about, and they're all red flags. There's a great line in working with others that says, when talking to a new guy, the more hopeless he or she feels, the better. That sounds pretty rough, but it's the truth. All options had to be removed from me. Any option, anything I can lock into had to be removed because my alcoholism gets a life by taking mine. And if it has an option, it'll take it. And I don't need you as much as I did my first 30 days. I have a job now. You know, I'm working nights, seven days where I'm making buku bucks. I'll get to AA when I get comfortable or bad enough to get there, and I never make it. Then I use all that money and go to detox and say, can you take me in? I just made a whole lot of money. You know, we get in relationships, and suddenly we get cured. We have babies, suddenly we're cured. You know, my alcoholism loves that because that's, that's the way I don't have to be here. Because the last thing my alcoholism wants is this. I have doctor's opinion and 43 follow-up pages that talk to me about step one. When we go through our book, you know, the steps are six and seven, a paragraph each. Interaction's got steps. How it works, three and four. 43 pages plus doctor's opinion to talk to a guy like me about what I'm up against, body, mind, and the lack of a relationship with God, the spiritual malady, this condition that I suffer from. I'm not connected with God. I might know. I can probably, maybe I can quote scripture. I can quote the big book. I can read inspirational books and regurgitate them to you. Maybe I'm a good church member. All of those things are not keeping me sober. What I need to have, instead of just information, is have a transformation with the information. Or I can get a whole bunch of uh, information AA and be programmed by my program rather than transformed by it. All of this is a road right back home. And it's interesting, when you get to that place, when we get to stand in the light, we want to tell people about it, but it's done differently than pontificating about it, yeah? It's a completely different walk. It's an attractive walk, not a promotional one. I've been guilty of being a promotional one during my first couple of years. I thought I wrote the big book. I'm telling people what to do. You're doing it wrong. Your third column's wrong. You got to get out of here. That kind of stuff. That's not Alcoholics Anonymous. 
My first step tells me we admitted to a palace over alcohol that Elias had become unmanageable. And I would read that I get it until I sat down with the sponsor and the follow-up sponsors who kept taking me back to step one. There's a whole lot to this. In fact, how can I even proceed any further if I'm not convinced deep down in my soul, not a conclusion of the mind, that I'm alcoholic and I'm, my, my condition is hopeless? There's a line on page 43 that says, uh, if I can find it, that I'm 100% hopeless apart from divine help. That's right out of the book. I'm 100% hopeless apart from divine help. And if I don't get God, I drink and die. Done. That's it. Those are my alternatives. Go on to the bitter end except spiritual help. I mean, it's clear. Admitted with palace over alcohol, life had become unmanageable. There was no power choice control involved anymore. That was long gone. I don't know if I even ever had it. But certainly leading up to the day God got me sober, there was no power choice control in my mind before I even picked up a drink. I never picked up the first drink drunk. I never picked up the first drink drunk. I never picked up the first drug stoned already. I was getting out of treatment or getting out of jail clean and sober. Treatment center said, you're graduating tomorrow. They give you the little medallion, and everyone says, I love you, you love me. We'll keep in touch. They're not doing that. They're not doing that. That cup I start to panhandle with, you know. But they give you a little thing, and, and, and off you go. 100% hopeless apart from divine help. I need to find God. But I'm clean and sober. In my case, sober leaving treatment. No post-acute withdrawal syndrome. My body's fine. Feeling, feeling myself, feeling okay again. Doing little push-ups and sit-ups in my little room. So I go to group. How you doing? I'm spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> now we don't drink and go to CrossFit. That's how that goes now. And um, not knowing that I'm already screwed because my mind owns me. It's so tricky, I don't even know my mind owns me. It gives me a thought and I follow through. And if you challenge me, how dare you? You're wrong, you don't know what it's like. I know what I'm doing. I figured this, I thought it out. That's a bad sign. <laughs> no power, choice, control in the mind. Well, we, we say in AA, I do too, John or Mary relapsed. What we really mean is they're using, they're on a run. Relapse precedes the first drink. That happens while I'm sober. My mind owns me, and I have no power, choice, control over this whole thought life that is setting me up for the ambush to pick up again. You know, maybe I'm visiting casino or cheating on the wife or the husband. I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing, watching things on the Internet that if anyone saw me, oh, my God, we'd both be mortified. And I'm doing stuff, I get away with it because it is me. It's okay. My sponsees can't do it, but I can do it. And it's, it's the downward spiral. And then one day, bang, give me a double. How did I get here? No power choice control in my mind before I even pick up a drink. Now the drink convinces, the mind convinces me to pick up a drink. I pick up a drink and you know what happens. I pick up the first drink and then I need a second drink. I, I spent nine weeks in my, uh, pardon me, my fifth treatment center. And I shared this a million times. It was the old 28, 30-day model back in the day, yeah? 
That's when the insurance company said, you're cured, go home. We're not paying for you anymore. So, and they figured out a way to ease you out of treatment. But for some reason, they held on to me for nine weeks. And after nine weeks being in an inpatient residential lockdown, my side of the door had no doorknob. It was one of those places. <laughs> With me? <laughs> So after nine weeks of doing this, they're taking me to the gym. I'm starting to work out and, you know, the little fitness center and the little basketball court. Nine weeks, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm putting on some weight. And they say to me, we have to discharge you Saturday. I know what I need to do. I learned my lesson. I'm going to really buckle down. I know what I need to do. And I hit the fresh air. And I got slapped in the face with reality. All the voices in the head woke up. And one of them, I need a drink right now. Nine weeks physically sober doesn't mean I'm spiritually fit. I was just a very, I was just a sober, very sick alcoholic. It was a start, but I had, I was anemic in the spiritual realm. I was, the muscles were flabby. There was no workout going on. What I get to do, we get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, is work out in the AA gym. We get spiritually fit. Some of you guys look like you work out. You go to the gym, you work out. You burn the body and you see results. You feel good all over. I need to do that in AA, but I need to work on the soul. And that's my relationship with God, who's begging to have a relationship with me. Is pursuing all of us to have, going to any lengths to have one this with me and I keep looking that way and I got things more important than being with God. There's nothing more important than being with God. My mind convinces me to pick up a drink so I uh, get out of this treatment center and I go back to my dad's house on a Saturday morning. There was nowhere else to go. And I stayed at his house Saturday and Sunday. Let me say this, if it wasn't for God working through my dad to keep me alive, you'd have a different speaker here before I got to AA. He was a man of great strength and courage. And on Monday morning, I couldn't take it. I'm crawling out of my skin. I can't eat. My dad's remedy for anything is a bowl of pasta. (laughs) You got the flu, eat. You know, And I, I couldn't even look at it. And he's trying to have... Our father and son talk to me the best he knows how. It's like good fellas getting together and, you know, this warm, fuzzy, to- and it, it, I couldn't even hear him. My brothers were trying to be supportive. They're in the way. Try to sleep at night, just tossing and turning because I got to get out of here. I need a drink. I can't take it anymore. And on Monday morning, I'm waiting for liquor store to open. I'm sweating. I'm, I'm vibrating. My hands are shaking. And I literally feel like I'm going through withdrawal. I wasn't going through withdrawal. Not after nine weeks. My body didn't need any mood or mind-altering substance, but the mind said, we do. Have you ever had the obsession so loud it begins to feel physical? And I need a drink just to calm down. I'm just going to have one. And my mind convinced me we're going to get one pint of whiskey, get back in the car and drive home. And I finally got a pint of whiskey and began to drink it. I never made it to the car because when the pint was done and I'm feeling the engines running, I need a second pint of whiskey and I have no power choice control in my body now. Now I'm getting squashed. The mind's screaming for more and the body's demanding it. And there's no way out. No human power is going to relieve me of this. The love of children, the love of a spouse, the love of a job, all things worthwhile to cast aside because I need to fix this thing. Because this monster is always hungry, and I can't get out. I'm in its grip. Big book says alcohol had me in its grip. I can't. I, I can't. There was a time I didn't even want to. I loved it. And when I wanted to get out, Satan had me, and I can't get out. Now he's playing with me. 
And as the big book says, thus started one more journey to the silent for Jim. I visited hell on that one. It turned out to be one of the worst junks, got arrested a whole bunch of times, only by God's grace. I didn't go to prison. I wasn't a stick-up guy. I wasn't that guy. But he got arrested enough time, judges, that he needed to go away for a while. That didn't happen. A lot has to do with my dad. Kept me out of that kind of stuff. The essence of this unmanageability, my experience has been, that I don't know what the day is going to look like when the drink calls and I go. Not a cloud on the horizon, end of a perfect day. Let me have a drink, okay. Or adversity hits, I know one way out, the old default button, have a drink, I'll just smooth off the edges. Anything, drink. And when that shows up, I have no power to stop it. What's really frightening, it doesn't even announce its arrival. When I start telling myself, I'm good to go, I'm fine, one meeting a month is good, everything's good, enough money, enough cars, enough prestige, I'm good. That's when it comes in. I can't even see it coming. It is so sneaky, it won't announce its arrival. And God is so loving, he won't announce his arrival either. One will save me, one will kill me. I thought on manageability, and this was part of it, that when I got here, living in an abandoned building, not changing my clothes or bathing and panhandling, and, and, and always after alcohol and can't get enough alcohol, that's unmanageability. Well, it is. But I quickly found myself doing something. That little dash that separates step, first part of step one, second part of step one, that little dash becomes a big wall. So I'm getting sober. I'm making meetings. I get a little sober job. Now I have clean clothes on, I'm clean shaven, I'm washing my hair, I'm presenting well, I'm sharing at meetings, I can pour myself a cup of coffee, it's not spilling all over me. And the old time was saying, you look good, you sound good, you look good, you sound good. Got your first AA job, very good. First AA car, way to go. So what my mind does is lock into, keep this going. Keep it manageable, keep all the ducks in a row, look good, sound good, be good, look good, sound good, be good. That doesn't keep me sober because I can't look over the wall. The first half of the first step says, no matter what you got, if you don't have God, you're drunk. If I always do what I always did, I'm always going to get what I always got. And you can't dress it up. And that would be current unmanageability, being sober in here a while and it's falling apart. And my ego has re-emerged to the point where I can't sit with someone and say, hey, Dave, you got a few minutes. I, I got to bounce this off you. I, my ego won't allow that because I'm perfect. I'm God now. And no one can know there's cracks in this armor. Dangerous, dangerous territory. One of the great, most freeing things I came in contact with was understanding and accepting my brokenness, my flawed character. One day, God might make me a spiritual being. One day, God might make me an enlightened being. But one thing he's given me, and I'm grateful for it, and I'll have it till my last breath, is human being, which means I'm broken and flawed, but the greater need for him. I don't have to be perfect. And in that brokenness, the shared brokenness we do here, you identify with me. And I can tell you the way out. This whole thing is divinely inspired. Page 52, we don't have enough time, talks about the bedevilments, the current unmanageability, trouble in personal relationships. It doesn't mean I had a, maybe an argument with a coworker or, or my spouse or something like that, and you, you kind of fix it up, you make amends, move on. It's trouble, inwardly and outwardly. I don't know which is worse. I'm fighting with people all the time. How can I live a life of uh, a contemplative if I'm taking sides and fighting? I've been guilty of that. When COVID hit, I was blaming people. 
I couldn't go to a meeting, and worse, I couldn't get my hair cut. I mean, this was serious <laughs> stuff. This was serious stuff. Yeah. Trouble in personal relationships, the dialogue all day long. And what's that doing? It's putting a little wedge, if you will. Can you imagine this way? Here's, not that there's never proximity between us and God, but it feels like there's proximity. And if you, a visual, like you put this little wedge. If we took that door over there, it opens and closes. If I put one sheet of loose leaf in the door jam, that door's going to be fine. If I put three or four sheets in that door jam, that door would work fine. If I put 50 or 60 sheets, that door's not working anymore. It's stuck. It's jammed. It's just what happens to me. A little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and a little bit more of this, and suddenly I feel like God has disappeared. Trouble in personal relationships can't control my emotional rage. I'm flying off the handle for nothing. Road rage all the time. No one's got it right except me. Yeah. Pray to misery and depression, full of fear. Feel like I can't make a living. What I do for a living, I hate. I'm too afraid to get out. I think I'm a great worker. Pull my workers, they'll tell you the truth. Like if you don't know where your defects are, ask your family, they'll tell you. <laughs> you know? can't be of use to other people. It goes on and on and on. I'm walking around in AA with the AA game face, but inwardly I got this stuff going on. It's all up in here. I'm just, I, I'm not right. And Thibaut talks about the reemergence of the ego. That has taken over. Pride is leading the pack, which means I'm God. I can't tell anyone I'm God. God forbid you think less of me. I'm God. And we start to just disintegrate. And there's the old default button that a lot of dust on it, some cobwebs, but it still works. Double vodka, and off I go again. Step one tells a guy like me, Peter Marinelli, you are going to drink. And there's no mercy in it. You are going to drink. I don't care what you achieve, how much information you have, who your friends are, what you do for a living. You are going to drink, period, non-negotiable. And the only way out of that kind of insanity is by having a relationship with God. And step two is the pointer to get to this God. It's not a conclusion of the mind, not my experience. Why would my mind come to a conclusion? I think I need God. If anything, it's going to keep me further away from it. But something goes on in the soul. I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. I don't want it. I'm dying. Please help. Mercy. Step two is the point to out of this life. But if I'm not careful, and I'm not diligent, I'm not looking to seek God at all costs, that will come right back to me. Alcoholism is not impressed with how long I'm sober. It's not impressed that I get to do and travel a lot in alcoholics. And it, it really doesn't care. In fact, it will use it against me. Wants me dead will settle for me drunk. Step one, at a gut level. The more, the more hopeless I feel, the better. Because I'm out of options, I can't do it, and I pray he's going to. And he always has. That's all I got. Peace. One more time, a round of our applause for our speaker. And then I've called up Joey to do the secretary's report.
Hello, everyone. I am Joey, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Hey, Joey. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. As they're going around, I've asked um, an awesome dude, a sacred member of this fellowship, uh, Jay, to come forward. He's going to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jay. I'm an alcoholic. This is recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forty style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, fifty percent got sobered once and remained that way. Twenty-five percent sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. Awesome. Um, All right, at this time, is there anyone out there that would need a sponsor? Please raise your hand. Awesome. If you don't mind standing. Sorry, what's your name? Sorry? Jen. Awesome. If anyone... I'm sorry. What's up, uh, what's your name? Uh, Jordan. Jordan, awesome. Awesome. Um, so now any uh, recovered alcoholics in this room? hey oh, You got some options, huh? So anyone, please um, uh, get with these guys. Thank you. And a young lady, too, sorry. Um, Anyway, all right. Uh, at this time, it's uh, anniversary night. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Peter. He was up here, and he did an amazing job. He's a, he's a wonderful conduit of God, and um, his uh, lovely wife is going to present him a medallion. alcoholic and a recovered alcoholic and um, it is so incredible to see lots of familiar faces coming in tonight and people that I've just been thinking about it tonight about how um, walking shoulder to shoulder with this man for over 10 years and then recently being married and when I first met him He talked about the carpenter, and when I first met him, he had a worn-out book of The Power of Now and a worn-out big book. And those were the first things that attracted me to him. 
besides he was really dang good looking. But, um, but that's still the man he is today. The man you see at this podium is the man he is at home, is the man who carries all this, who he is, his relationship with God being the most important thing to him in the whole world, no matter what anybody else thinks, no matter what anybody else says, that's his passion and that's his life. God and Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, it's a privilege to walk hand in hand with you, honey. Here's your 34 years. people on the door. Um, real quick, if you knew, this isn't so much about me, that's not being false and humble. This shows AA works, the power of alcohol, Christ, and God. And it all starts with one day. Michael, the group, thank you for allowing me to do this. Awesome. Thank you, Peter. Um, Right. Uh, we do have some announcements. Uh, a, the, the inner group. Um, ever heard of them? Well, you can buy a related literature medallions. Inner group is also responsible for the where and when and scheduling the A hotline. Stop on by and visit them. Next. Brow Broward County Institutions Committee. It's responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us can't get out to AA meetings, such as jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly to organize the meeting schedules at the sacred 12-step house. Do we have any members of BCIC committee here? I don't know who. Oh, please, come here, sorry. Yes, do you have any questions uh, next. So we here's some good announcements. We do have some flyers in the back. Um, so if you want to learn more, please go grab yourself a flyer. And yes, next. Um, this meeting, uh, Peter will be joining us um, for the next few weeks, and we're very grateful for that. So please come back. Uh, also, my home group, um, another great meeting, uh, upstairs, third floor, pop on by, um, where the big book comes alive. We dissect the big book page by page. Um, it's really great time. It's been my home group since the longest, since like 2012. So um, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, look, you can join us, 630 for fellowship and cookies presented by Alan. And the meeting itself starts at 715. All right. Alan's a great man, yes. Uh, all right. Um, displayed in the back as well, we do have CDs, mugs, large print, big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries that are for sale. Is there still a BOGO? There's a BOGO on CDs, I think. Two for a dollar. And this economy can't beat that. Um, uh, we, meet, we meet every Thursday here, probably starting at 15. Come early if you'd like to fellowship. We ask to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you all. See you next week. Okay, so we have tonight's session and all the past speakers podcast at alcoholicsandgod.org. 
Um, like Joey said, Monday night big book study. Um, I'd like to invite all you guys out to that. And um, anybody who wants to thank tonight's speaker, which is probably everybody, can line up down the aisle and say thank you to him. Wish him a happy anniversary. And um, last but not least, if anybody can volunteer to help pick up the chairs at the back tables, so like the, the circle tables, those chairs, that'd be wonderful. Um, but with that, we'll, we'll go ahead and close out with the Lord's Prayer. So a moment of silence for the still sick and suffering in and out of the program and the children and families who have no say-so in the matter. Our Father, Our Father, Lord of heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Thank you guys so much. Come back soon. Heart is heavy. Soul is thirsty. Body's aching. It doesn't matter.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Now, growing vines, they 
twist and turn each way Flowers blooming all the time Outside my door Never before I had to change everything To realize That today is the best day of my God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Got one man that just won't say. 